Hello everyone and welcome once again to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. In the first segment this week, Nick DeSena rides the new 2024 Kawasaki Ninja ZX-6R. This is the 636cc four-cylinder Supersport Screamer that has proven so popular for the last couple of decades. Nick rides the Ninja at Ridge Motorsports Park in Shelton, Washington, and he reminds us of why Supersport machines are so much fun to ride. In our second segment, TJ Adams chats with associate editor Freeman Wood. He rode to Sturgis and back with one of his buddies. Riding an Indian chieftain, Freeman makes it sound like it was an interesting and sometimes arduous trip from Southern California. But ultimately, a good time was had by all. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. 636 cc inline four cylinder powered super sport from kawasaki um, originally launched back in 2013 and unlike its japanese competitors it's received a handful of updates over the years uh, various aesthetic updates some minor tweaks here and there by and large it really is the same motorcycle that was released way back when but the reality is it's been receiving far more updates than any of its japanese competitors who have well, to be blunt, have sort of abandoned that class as a whole. And there's a lot of reasons for that, which we'll probably touch on as we go through this conversation. But it is safe to say the last holdout in many markets um, for the classic 600 Supersport class. So really, so I'm sort of a little surprised by that statement because I thought the R6 was essentially you know sort of updated regularly so well the r6 is no longer available to the general public uh, it left the market and is now race only so the last time the r6 was updated was in 17 and it really did get updated kind of at the same rate as the 636 but you know now it's a non-player um because you can still purchase it as a race only vehicle through gytr but it is no longer sitting on dealership room floors as a registrable street legal motorcycle. And that really has to do with the fact that Yamaha, Honda, um, and other manufacturers uh, of that classic 600cc Supersport class have not been updating their motorcycles to comply with emissions regulations. So that's kind of where we stand. Um, technically, you still can buy the R6. So... If you want to get super nitpicky, then I guess you can punch a hole in that statement. But I'm just going to tell you that you're wrong anyway. So, yeah, that's <laughs> that one. Um, all right. Fair enough. I'm very used to being wrong. So I'm all right with that. At the end of the day, it's a lot of these bikes are still available in the United States. Uh, the R6 is is not sold as a street bike in the United States anymore. Um, you can still get a Suzuki GSX-R 600. I was going to say, yeah. And you can still get uh, the Honda CBR uh, 600 as well. Now, when you look at other markets, European markets, those bikes have exited stage left. And the only reason that those bikes are still being sold in the United States isn't because uh, they sell particularly well, because they are not a growth 
category for any manufacturer, to be honest. And that's another factor as to why they're not being updated. Um, but, you know, it's because we don't have to comply with Euro 5 emissions. Um, right, right. And so until those those bikes are slapped by an emission standard in the United States that that will make them uh, unviable, then, you know, they will persist here. And we see that with a lot of different motorcycles that may leave other markets. They will continue on in the United States or other markets that uh, allow them to be sold. Uh, but really, you know, the when you have a, a racing class, a class that's designed for racing, I would argue that it needs a, a global stage, we'll say. Uh, so it can race in different classes. It can participate in those different classes. And the CBR 600, uh, you know, it did actually get an update quite recently. Um, I believe back in 22 or or maybe even 21, um, where it received, you know, an aero package and new dash and things like that. It is the core, core same motorcycle. Um, but that's, as far as I know, Japan only. Uh, and it's really done to update that bike so it can race in Japanese uh, series as well. Uh, so again, we have no access to that. Uh, the one that we can buy in the United States is the the CBR. That's been the CBR for well, at least a a few presidents at this case at this point. So <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's it's a really kind of tricky tricky conversation with some of these models because in certain markets they are available, in certain markets they aren't. But at the end of the day, the super sport class is really not getting updated the way it would have been if we just wind back the clock and look at the class when it first came out, which was highly competitive, they were being updated uh, almost on an annual basis of not, if not every year, then every other year at least, uh, because that was one of the most impacted classes, um, not only on racing grids, but club racing grids, and then also just public consumption. They were extremely popular. Now the, yeah. the sort of thing that, that changed is, you know, the, the demographics started aging a bit and, you know, the aggressive ergonomics definitely take their toll, but, you know, that's sort of the, the long winded backstory to this whole thing. Um, okay. You know, the, the 2024 Kawasaki Ninja ZX6R, you know, has a, a handful of updates this year and okay, really it's, it's, it's a very subtle evolution of what we know the bike to be. So if you want everything in a nutshell, what's coming on the, the 2024, you're going to have some small engine tweaks uh, that do have do have some impact. Uh, the brand's tried and true TFT display comes into play. So that's on the Ninja 650, the ZX4RR, uh, I believe the touring bikes, the Versus 650, and also the 1000. It's on a number of models at this point. I don't want to say it's... Uh, used with ubiquity across the entire line, because I know there are a couple bikes that, that have full color TFT displays that do not use it, but it's on the clear majority of their models at this point. Um, we also updated or haven't updated a set of rotors. Uh, they're no longer pedal style. They're just round rotors and there's really no performance benefit there. It's just a, a styling thing at this point. And they've also changed out uh, the tires going from Bridgestone Battle X Hypersport S22 tires to Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 tires. Um, 
which in our case is sort of irrelevant because we did a track test and opted for Pirelli Diablo Superbike Slicks uh, SC1 compound. Um, but we're just stating that on record. So really, what you know, where are the updates in this bike? Is that have they done anything to the engine at all? Or yeah, a couple subtle tweaks. Uh, again, this is all for Euro Five emissions compliance, and the six thirty six cc engine broke the mold when it came out in twenty thirteen. It, it stepped away from the traditional six hundred cc herd. Yeah, in the sense that you know when it had uh, an extra three dozen cc's, it it allowed a lot more comparatively, a lot more bottom end and mid range uh, shove, you know, when you stack it against the the classic 600 CC engines that really make most of the power, I would say upper mid range and then top end. As far as low end power, it's just not there. It's not what a short stroke inline four engine is designed to do. Its strength is really building top end power. But the, those extra CCs allowed ZX6R to have more low end and mid range, which is exactly what a street rider wants. You know, you're never really going to be wringing a bike's neck to the point where you're into that, that 14,000, 13,000 rev range when you're just riding around on the street. I mean, yeah, if you're getting after it in the canyons, one could argue that you might every now and again, but by and large, you're going to be cruising along and you need power and torque to do that. So that's something that the ZX6R has always had. And thankfully, that trait still shines through. So, you know, with the updates, uh, you know, kind of starting at the top, there are some new intake funnels. There's also a new camshaft and camshaft profiles. So it has lower lift and shorter duration to kind of unjumble that technical jargon. That just means less air fuel mixture is going into the chambers and then less spent gases are coming out. It also has a redesigned header. Uh, the O2 sensor is located a little bit more upstream to give more accurate readings. And, and, and all of this is done to just help comply with uh, ever stringent carbon standards. Um, you know, th those are the, the core changes to this inline four engine. And uh, it also has an updated fuel map as well. But when I hear you say uh, about, uh, you know, reduced lift and, and, you know, the changes to the camshaft and so on, that sounds to me like less power. Now, if you were to dyno this thing, you're probably still going to see it in that kind of 110, 10-ish range, one, you know, right in there where it's always been. And then the the sort of the the classic 600s are right around that, that just above 100, 100 horsepower mark. So, yeah, you might be losing a little bit of horsepower there, definitely a, a point or two. Um, that said... I haven't uncorked it and, you know, performance builders haven't gotten that far just quite yet. So, you know, we're at the Ridge Motorsports Park in, in Shelton, Washington, extremely technical track, super fun, lots of elevation. And, you know, the thing behaves like a typical inline four 600. The thing just screams to something above 14,000 RPM. You know, it's uh you know, fast rubbing engine. It's very smooth, very fun. And characteristically, it still has that, that extra little sniff of, of bottom end and mid range power. And we really were able to test that. Um, if people are familiar with the Ridge Motorsports Park, there's a chicane in the front straight that they added a couple of years ago, or maybe last year, 
um, to kind of slow bikes down because turn two is a, a bit hairy. But, um, you know, you really have to get the bike slowed into that section. And so, yeah, you're right in the mid-range. So you can definitely sample it there. The engine still has the mid-range punch that we know. Now, Kawasaki said that they retuned it to emphasize that characteristic. It's really tough for me to validate that claim because I don't have a direct comparison to the prior model in the sense that I we don't have dyno data. But what I can say is that characteristic is still alive and well and all the better for it. Now, as you go through the rev range, when you get up to about, I would say 12,500 RPM, give or take, the thing starts to level off, uh, which as I mentioned before, stands against kind of the short stroke inline four design uh, ethos. Um, you know, inline four engines, especially short stroke inline four engines make most of their power up top. That's sort of their, that's their thing. You know, uh, a, a, a long stroke V twin engine that's torque, 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 almost no top end short stroke inline four engines are the exact opposite of that. And in this case, I would say, like you mentioned before, so the new, uh, uh, the new camshaft, new fueling, things like that, it has sacrificed a little bit of top end's power. Now, Kawasaki is bringing along uh, Chuck Graves and his team from Graves Motorsports to a lot of their sport bike events this year. Uh, we saw that with his ZX4RR, where Chuck Graves was on hand. Uh, because he has been assisting with Kawasaki Motor Corp's um, road racing efforts in the United States and building performance solutions. And he was on hand to answer those types of questions. So Graves already has uh, a boatload of different parts available for the ZX6R because they have been racing it in Moto America for the past few seasons. And yeah, you can build a full-blown super spurt bike you know, straight out of the gate and get all that power back and more if you wanted to. Um, it's going to cost you a pretty penny because that's what race bikes do, but yeah, it's there. Um, but that, that kind of, you know, that's the engine in a nutshell and there's more to talk about there, but, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, what else have they done? I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking here for, you know, for some real updates to this machine that, that are, is going to give it a reason for, give somebody a reason for upgrading or, or, you know, swapping out their bike. Yeah. I mean, obviously this is a, a tricky situation with the engine because in, you know, from a, a sort of pessimistic view, you are paying more money for arguably less horsepower. Um, but this is something that I do think we need to address because, you know, whether that horsepower is a lot or little, I would say it's probably just a few points and then really the fueling. Um, but without putting a, a hard yes or no on it, the cam could be a limiting factor. Uh, and you may have to switch that out. Now, if you do a full super sport build, you're going to switch that cam out and it's like not an issue anymore. That said, this is a reality that all of the Japanese manufacturers uh, are facing and arguably BMW because they make inline four cylinder engines as well. Um, and really this doesn't, this, this whole spiel doesn't apply to inline four cylinders engines specifically. Uh, when you do not change displacement, 
and you know you keep an engine persisting on the market it's going to face new emissions hurdles and as you saddle an engine with more emissions equipment there's going to be a performance compromise of some kind and you know this engine goes back to 2013 so euro 5 emission standards weren't even a twinkle in a legislator's eye at this point and yes there there's going to be some compromise i mean the suzuki hayabusa for example uh, even in its latest iteration, although it's quite similar to the prior gen bike, it lost a few ponies. And I would say that was the first bike that I, I witnessed myself that came in and was sort of, uh, we'll say, not immune to, uh, you know, ever stringent emission standards. So, yeah, this is just a reality of, you know, kind of pushing these older platforms into the future they're going to have you know compromises with uh, performance uh, as they continue on because unless you raise the displacement and make some some pretty big changes you're not going to be able to maintain that same level of performance and that really explains why brands like ducati triumph mv gusta um and many many others ktm sort of notorious for this, where you'll see an engine come out. You think the best example of this is the 790 Duke, then rapidly became the 890 Duke. And now there's spy shots of an even bigger middleweight Duke coming out. Or you'll you'll look at the Ducati 748, and now that is almost a 1,000cc bike in equivalent, the Panigale V2. Um, you know, so their solution was, let's just make the engine bigger. And, you know, they've been able to maintain and not just maintain, but rap radically as exceed the prior generation's ex performance while meeting emission standards. Um, you know, you've seen this in the BMW GS, you know, a, a multitude of bikes that just get bigger and bigger and bigger every year. And it's not because we want the bikes to get bigger. We don't. Bigger is not better. Bigger is heavier in most cases. It's because you need to tackle emission standards and also balance that against performance. And so, you know, at the end of the day, this engine is still good and we've been talking around the engine, but yes, it is struggling against, you know, ever stringent emission standards. And with electrification around the corner, you do have to ask, you know, how much longer all of these older platforms are are gonna be viable and so oh, suzuki's probably quaking their boots right now Ugh. but uh <laughs> you know, given the age of a lot of their engines and kawasaki has updated their engines on a far more regular basis and honda well, they're right next to suzuki in a lot of cases because some of those bikes are are pretty dated at this point so yeah. um yeah and in terms of meaningful updates we'll just get into the rest of it you know the the core updates really come down to not just bold new graphics, but uh, new bodywork. And that's really to bring it in line with the greater Ninja family. Uh, and, and not just the, the bikes that are available in the United States as well. So you have the, the ZX25R and, and RR, which is available overseas. Uh, you know, we received the ZX4RR. And then, all, of course, you have the, the, the 10R. Um, now the the new styling, I actually really like it. I think they did uh, a spot on job. But um, then you have the TFT display, 
there's some new riding modes. So you have sport, road, and rain, and they don't change the throttle maps because it still has an old school cable driven throttle. But, uh, you know, it's, it is a step up in comparison to the old, the old TAC and LCD screen. Um, by and large, it really is kind of the same bike. And, you know, we, we can look at this, you know, in a, in a way that, you know, is, is a bit negative when you go, oh, well, there's not a whole lot updated, you know, whatever, whatever. But I have to tell you, you know, riding this bike, riding that engine, even with the power loss up top, you know, I'm still blown away about how good a super sport is. You know, I forget how awesome these things are at the racetrack, um, which is kind of their natural habitat. So, you know, the riding position is quite, quite aggressive. And Kawasaki really leans into that probably more so than most. So the front to back uh, seat distance is, is a bit shorter than a lot of the other bikes that, uh, you know, are still hanging on. And uh, the advantage is that it, it, it forces you to put your weight over the front end and arguably gives you a little bit more front end feedback uh, because of that. The downside to it is that it makes it a lot more aggressive. So for me, if I were to add this to the garage, and start tracking it and, uh, you know, doing club racing, uh, updating the ergonomics would be absolutely mandatory. And I would almost say that for any sport bike that I, that I've ever owned, uh, actually, yes, all of them. So th <laughs> that's not a knock. It's just, you need to get the ergonomics right for you. For me personally, I would kick the bars out a bit, make them a bit wider and flatter and then adjust the rear sets. And I would be pretty much golden. Um, that said, Kawasaki almost always gets it right with their fuel tank design. You can grip it under braking zones, it has loads of real estate to hang off. I think they always really do well there. So ergonomically, this thing's aggressive and you know, like a super sport should be. Um, okay. That said, that's also been one of the biggest criticisms of super sports over the years is that you know, they're aggressive and they're, they're taxing on at lower speeds, but in a racetrack environment, that's, that's where it comes into its own. Cause you can, you know, wrestle the thing around and climb all over it, like a little jockey. And that's very cool. Okay. All right. Suspension and handling. Have they um, updated anything there or is it the tried and true stuff? Yes. Yeah, same stuff there. You know, you still have the same aluminum perimeter frame. Um, and then, of course, the fully adjustable Showa suspension uh, does use the Showa single function fork in the front. So that means you have uh, a spring and or, or preload adjustment in, in the left leg, if I remember correctly. And then the uh, damping adjustment is in your right leg. So single function fork can be taken quite literally. Um, you know, they are dividing the the functions to each leg. Now, a lot of uh, higher spec forks on the market, say what's found on the ZX-10R uh, or other sport bikes, you know, you have uh, spring adjustment and damping adjustment individually dedicated to each leg. Now, arguably, um, you get more control and compliance from that type of setup. And then you have the the fully adjustable shock on the rear end as well. That said, you turn a couple screws, get the bike dialed in, and this thing is pretty much ready to turn some fast laps when you got some, you know, decent tires on it. Um, you know, halfway decent tires. The chassis on this thing, and that's sort of the 
the core of super sport for me. It's you, you have, you know, the 110, 112, 115 horsepower, whatever a ZX six R can make on the dyno these days. Um, coupled that to just an absolutely ripping chassis. And that's like the gem of super sport riding. It's, it's power that you need to respect, but not be fearful of the way that you would on a super bike. And when you compare it to something like the ZX4RR, you can just absolutely, you know, beat that type of power and submission. And you're sort of laughing maniacally the whole time where a 600 comes into play that power starts to mean something and you know the uh, a properly set up chassis giving you good mechanical grip with you know some really sticky tires like we had the pirelli diablo superbike uh se1 compounds if you're running slicks i mean it's it's pretty hard work to to start spinning up that rear end and high siding because you got incredible grip and tons tons of confidence going through there so that's where that that sort of super sport magic really happens um and and that's why i i'm you know I, i'm conflicted about this bike in some ways because yeah the engine updates do reduce power a little bit arguably but it still hits that mark for me where you know i'm getting off the racetrack and i'm like wow like super sports are still just absolutely fun to ride they're just sick you know you're you know the ridge if we've watched it in you know the the moto america broadcast that it really doesn't do it justice there's elevation it's just an undulating circuit super technical it's also quite narrow which is really surprising to me um but you have plenty of punch off these corners you know a lot of a lot of tricky slow going stuff as well that's blended with just blitzing you know corners um and high speed sections a lot of blind entries and blind exits um and where the where the chassis shines is just you know getting through that stuff and giving you the confidence to just twist that grip and get into it and yeah so it, it is it is still an agile motorcycle and the one thing that i've learned over the years with the zx6r is that it's it's really easy to to adjust geometry you know you can shim the rear shock you know, put the bike on its nose, you know, raise the rear ride height because the Japanese bikes don't have ride height adjustment like some of the some of the European manufacturers do. But shoving a couple shims in there is not a big deal. Um, that was one of the recommended things during our track test at the Ridge. Um, if we felt like we needed a little bit more, we could start tossing some shims in, shims in there. Uh, a couple guys went that way. A couple guys didn't. I was on the fence where I didn't think I really needed it. I was, you know, I had the confidence that I wanted on the edge of the tire, uh, especially through sections where you're unloading the bike and, and still, you know, rolling on or kind of deep into the gas. So I didn't want to add any nervousness into the mix. And then, you know, through some of those long, long, just cranked over corners, you know, I wanted to maintain that, that stability as much as I could. Um, you know, so it, it's always a balance and it's personal preference too. Sure, but, of course. You know, the main thing is, is that you're not fighting the 1000 CC sort of physics because uh, a 1000 CC engine one, you're dealing with more horsepower. The crank is a lot heavier. Uh, you're adding, you know, rotational variables into things. So, you know, when marketing literature says, oh, this 1000 CC handles like a 600, it's like, nah, man, that's like, I can't even happen. <laughs> so, 
yeah. and it's just <laughs> that's a cool goal and everything but no no it's not <laughs> real um yeah and the 600 doesn't handle like a 400 either <laughs> exactly you know because that thing is is lighter it's smaller uh just you know tossing physical size out of the window um you know the 6r does feel feel quite small and, and kawasaki really leans into that with their seating positions overall like um they're they're fairly tight and that encourages i would say the the compact and and sort of uh agile feeling that you get from a lot of kawasaki's uh so you know whether that's a placebo thing or not i'm not entirely sure but <laughs> right that's sort of the way it is um you know that said everything else is sort of steady as she goes on that front it still has the same nissan brakes we mentioned the rotor is now round instead of a pedal style for me there's no difference in the in the braking there you know the we ran non abs models so just rubber lines that went from the master cylinder down to the calipers and same thing for the rear now you can get a little bit of squish on that adjustable lever uh, just because that's the nature of a rubber line we were riding in i want to say like 60 degree weather or something something like that um so you know brake fade wasn't an issue but the fact is that the the Nissan stuff isn't the highest spec in the land. What with you know Brembo Stylema calipers and things like that on the market. That said, these brakes work really well. I mean, that's that stuff is still hanging tough. I would use it for racing and track days all day. Um, you know, brake feels good. the The thing that you could upgrade really easy, especially in a non ABS model, is the brake lines. And you go to braided, some braided lines on it. Yeah. Yeah, steel braided lines, and you know you're you're pretty much dialed to that point. Um, and you know the bike also has traction control. It has the option of sort of a you know more rudimentary ABS system. These are not lean angle sensitive uh, traction control systems or or cornering ABS or anything like that. Um, and they do cost a pretty penny, in, or ABS costs a pretty penny. It's a thousand dollar upgrade from the eleven thousand two hundred ninety nine dollar price that we were talking about and then you you go up to 12,299 uh same price for every color things like that so that's pretty cool so you can get like white black the krt edition everything's the same price it's just whether you want abs or not if you're on the street i would argue that abs is still completely uh worthwhile i mean a thousand dollars here is better than twelve thousand there when it's on its side I would agree as well. Yeah. So, um, but for club racers, track day guys, uh, that's just one more thing to disable. Um, and dealing with ABS pumps and things like that is kind of a pain. So I, I want to recommend that if, if track is your, is your thing. Um, the TFT display tried and true, you know, my only sort of gripe against is that, you know, switching modes isn't, the most uh, intuitive there needs to be some identifier uh, with in, instead of this long press method that it just switches the the mode there needs to be something that 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 actually confirms that that choice but by and large those are the changes on the books and you know like i said it's it's an interesting test because you know it brought up those sort of feelings where i'm like man 
I don't know how much longer these things are going to be able to stick around, but I sure am glad these things are here. You know, you put some good tires on a super sport and there's really just nothing like it. Cause like I said, it's, it's above the performance of a ZX, ZX4 RR or any well-sorted lightweight bike, you know, head and shoulders above that. But the, you know, the, the sort of the inherent fear that comes with any leader, leader class bike is stressful. And then you have the 600, which you can just absolutely wail on, which is why, you know, a lot of intermediate track day enthusiasts, club racers, that's the bike that they gravitate towards. And then you have expert riders that, you know, ride their entire careers there because it's that really, it's that, it's that Goldilocks. It's that sweet spot for horsepower and performance. And it's that balance that, you know, a lightweight bike definitely, definitely hints at. There's no doubt about that. That's corner speed. That's understanding, you know, maintaining your momentum, et cetera, et cetera. The 600 is, I think, kind of the zenith of that. And, you know, things are changing. You know, if you look at the next generation super sport field, we have Panigale V2s. We have uh, F3RRs, which is an 800. We have uh, the Triumph 765. Uh, and then the traditional six, 600s that are still able to race because you still can race a CBR 600 and a ZX6R, et cetera, et cetera. Now they're allowing, you know, a lot of different engine uh, building aspects that they weren't allowing before. Right. Uh, so they're getting more power of them and they're still viable. You look at Moto America and Stefano Mesa has been ripping around on one of those things for a little while now. Richie Escalani won a couple or won a championship uh was it two years ago um and the zx6r you know is still one races in the world super sport level um but man you know i i know electrification is around the corner and so i don't know how how long a lot of engines are going to be on the market at that point but uh yeah i i still you know love 600s and yeah you know, you are losing a bit of performance, but look, that's the reality of, you know, kind of pushing these, these established engine platforms into the future uh, without, you know, doing heavy modifications and, and changing displacement and things like that. So yeah, is, is it still viable? Absolutely. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some things to think about for sure. And to me, if you're a track day guy, I would still be looking at a ZX6R for sure, you know, um, and and just kind of really just dialing into that that balance between power and chassis. It's just it's still there and it's still awesome. So that's kind of where we're at. Terrific. Yeah, I I remember the ZX6R. I uh, I got to ride it at uh, the Kawasaki owned track in Japan, and I rode it around Autopolis for a couple of days and. Had an absolute blast on it. I mean, 600s are a lot of fun, like you say. Okay. All right, Nick. Hey, thanks very much. Appreciate your time and insight. Um, you made me want to ride a super sport again. Yeah. 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 So so do I. So. <laughs> All right. See you later. All right. Cool. In our second segment, TJ Adams chats with associate editor Freeman Wood. He rode to Sturgis and back with one of his buddies. Riding an Indian chieftain, Freeman makes it sound like it was an interesting and sometimes arduous trip from Southern California. But ultimately, 
a good time was had by all. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. We had uh, four people originally who were going to go. Uh, myself, uh, a buddy of mine, Alex, um, who came from San Francisco, uh, one buddy who was coming from Maine, and another buddy who was coming from Louisiana. We were going to all triangulate into Sturgis for the week. Uh, unfortunately, uh, my one buddy from New Orleans, uh, he couldn't, uh, he had some family obligations, so he had to bail out. And uh, our buddy from Maine, he came, but when, he, when the other guy bailed, he decided that it'd be better to ship his bike and fly and save himself to, to for the event, which was probably smart by on his, on his part, so. Yeah, because you had some rain, apparently. Yeah, it was a lot more rain than, than I think anybody expected. Uh, we we got rained on day two and day three of our trip to Sturgis. And then the first full day of Sturgis, it just rained all day. And it was just a mess. Um, and I don't think anybody was very well prepared for it, given how many big motorcycles I saw, you know, stuck in the mud places. Yeah, you sort of go along once you plan a ride like that. You've got all the optimism <laughs> and some practicalities just disappear. Yeah, and that's that's so true. Uh, my buddy Alex, uh, he uh, got all excited about packing, but realized his he was just bringing a um, a Triumph Street Triple, which is not a great uh, long distance motorcycle, and probably not the appropriate bike for Sturgis. But that was he he was bringing, so he had to make some uh, tough choices in his in his packing and and rain gear and uh, sleep sleep gear were uh, didn't make the cut, unfortunately for him. So. <laughs> He was pretty optimistic about the rain, and so we had to stop along the way to, to get them all decked out but, uh, from someplace. But he did pack a crucial piece of equipment, his drinking vessel. Yeah, yeah. his, his trade-off was, well, I could either bring the rain gear or the Norse drinking horn, and he chose the Norse drinking horn, which, you know, it's kind of hard for me to fault him on that one, but uh, that was his choice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. Um, now, how long do you think the whole trip took you roughly days wise how long were you riding took us three days to get out there um and we came from bend i was up there and he my buddy alex came up and, and met me up there so it took us three days to get there and that was pushing you know pretty reasonably and then we took four days to get back because alex wanted to take an extra day in colorado and sort of explore and, and see some friends and stuff like that nice so idea. it was a little bit easier on the way back and, and for me uh, the, the weather a little bit better we better tell people where you were coming from. I've just realized. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We came uh, back from Sturgis. And uh, the, so I'll tell you the route. The route we went out, we started in Bend and we cut through Idaho and through Oxbow and, and the Snake River to McCall. And then from McCall, we went north up along the Little Salmon River and then the Salmon River up to Missoula across the Lolo Pass, which was that day was just a spectacular day cruising along the rivers. And going over the pass and coming into Montana, that was really uh, fantastic. But then rain was starting to come and we didn't have the rain gear for Alex yet. So uh, we cruised down to Dillon, Idaho, uh, hoping for the next day to uh, go through uh, go through Yellowstone National Park, where Alex had never really, really been. Unfortunately, the next morning we woke up and it was just dumping rain. And we decided that fighting the crowds of Yellowstone in the rain on a motorcycle wasn't the best Plan. So we ended up heading north uh, up into Montana and again across to Bozeman, where we were going to stop for some coffee, which we stopped for coffee and a beer, and a beer led to another beer. And the next thing you know, we were deciding to stay in Bozeman for the night 
and explore both worlds. <laughs> it was a ton of fun, uh, but it left us you know, almost a five-hour day the next day, or 500-mile ride the next day to get to uh, Sturgis, which was in, in rain, which was a little tough, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time when you were drinking beer. It seemed beer. like a great plan because neither one of us had, had neither one of us had explained or explored to the bosun very much. So we were very excited to see it and and, uh, and experience it, and we had a lot of fun. But it made the the final day a little tough, and coming in in the rain was also tough. But we got there pretty safely, and and the route the route back was uh, we went south down to Colorado to Estes Park, then up through the mountains, hit some of the passes like Independence Pass and. Uh, a Berthoud Pass, just to explore them on motorcycles, which was fantastic. Ended up in Aspen, uh, then stayed and I with some friends of Alex's there. Then I took off, started to head back home through Utah and Nevada, and Alex stayed for an extra day to drive his, his motorcycle across some more passes. That is a fantastic wide variety. It's a wide range of places you've gone through and, and series on in, in a relatively short space of time. That's sort of a lot of local sightseeing. So if I can take you back to the start, you, you're heading out from Los Angeles area, mm -hmm. California. And Sturgis is on most motorcyclists, most riders' bucket list. I'd say it's, it's an iconic American thing to do. Had you been before yourself? Never had. It was always kind of, as you said, a bucket list item for me. I'd been through once while it was going on, but I didn't have a chance to stop. And, and I, so I had a feel for the magnitude. But even with that, going there for a few days, it was remarkable how many motorcyclists descend on the little town of Sturgis, uh, South Dakota. Yeah, it's thousands, apparently. I mean, hundreds of thousands. It's uh, It takes a town of something like seven or 8,000 people and explodes it to, I heard some estimates of, half a million people that's that's quite a bit <laughs> wow yeah that's incredible and uh were the bikes that you saw sort of were they mixed riders or were they mainly sort of harley davidson and you went on an indian yourself didn't you tell us a I bit did. about your indian, a, first of all yeah I, I went on a 2021 indian uh, springfield dark horse which i have been customizing with some just comfort features and performance features over the last couple of years and and I rode that. It was kind of the uh, objective of making it all ready to go for this trip. So it was it was a great bike to ride and beautiful uh, and fun and, and very comfortable. So I love that. But the the it was I was surprised at how dominant uh, it was with Harley's at at Sturgis. It was Harley Davidsons were probably eighty five percent of the bikes I saw. Um, it wow. was. It was remarkable. I expected to see a, a much wider variety of Indians and, and other makes and, and models, and it was it was pretty dominated by Harley Davidson. Yeah, I think times are changing a little, but um, I think it's great to see, see the Harley Davidsons because they are the sort of bikes that you imagine to be there at Sturgis and the sort of bikes doing the road trips around America. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And there so were you know, can... I mean, so many custom bike, customized Harleys and beautiful bikes and locked loud bikes. And uh, it was uh, it was amazing. There's one picture I have in my mind of, of the downtown Sturgis and literally almost as far as you could see, there are Harleys lined up parked uh, and, um, and you know, some other bikes, too. But but just a lot of, uh, of really big cruisers. And it was just remarkable to see that many motorcycles in one spot. Did you get chatting to anybody? I mean, you said you made some changes to your Indian. Um, did you chat to other people about anything they might have done to their bikes for the trip or anything, any useful information we can put out there? Sure. Pe people were fantastic, really nice. And we we had uh, rented uh, these little 
they call them cabins, but they're basically a ice fishing hut that <laughs> they put on the grounds of Buffalo Chip and four cots and some inflatable addresses. It was not uh, luxurious living for sure, but uh, people are all around us and met so just really interesting people of all different walks of life and different places and so many people into motorcycles, into riding that, yeah, we talked about motorcycles all the time. We had one guy, uh, ex-Marine, uh, older guy who was next to us, and he had customized his bike to to look really, um, had all this military stuff on it and a great paint job and these you know commemorative stuff to his time in the service. And it was just, it was just amazing. He told us all, all the places he's been and when he first got the motorcycle. And another guy on the other side of us, a younger guy, had a performance-oriented uh, bike, really uh, low-slung, didn't look very comfortable, but it was loud and very fast. Uh, so it was you know, everything in between, and, and people always love to talk about um, the bikes. Uh, surprisingly, uh, not too many people were on you know multi-day, four or five-day trips to get trips to get there. The people who live further away trailer a lot of them trailer them in. So people wanted to hear about our journey and how we got there and what we were thinking and and what we saw. So it was fun. Yeah, I love all that. When you see what people have done to their bikes and the gear they wear, it's just an extension of their personalities and you can you can learn a lot about them and it's their expression, which I really like. I like it when people do different things to their, their motorcycles. I find it really interesting. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's, that's one of the great things about motorcycles versus any other form of transportation like that. It's uh, You can really personalize it. And uh, I got to that, that feeling when I was on, working on the Indian project because you know, I got to make it exactly the way I wanted to do uh, the way I built it was, and the reason I chose the, the, that motorcycle is because I could build it up to be a big cruiser with windscreen and, and top box and all the stuff that, that makes it comfortable. But all those things were quick release and can be taken off. So it can be a really kind of naked, you know, big cruiser motorcycle for just bombing around town, which I really liked. So that is, this is the Dark Horse. So what does it come with as standard? You've got your baggage. Yeah, it's got uh, big hard hard panniers on the side, um, which I did not remove. But um, I added to it a, a slim trunk with a backrest for it, which was great. I added to it uh, a big windscreen, uh, which was also obviously great for for the trip. Did some performance mods, uh, put another exhaust, some new cams in it, um, and a new seat, bigger seat, which was supposed to be heated and cooled, but you know, still haven't quite. Got that working totally yet. The heating <laughs> is, this all, from, is this all Indian gear? Is this all it's Indian, all Indian gear? gear? Yeah, I par partnered with India and they and they uh they let me sort of pr peruse their catalog and pick what, what I wanted to do on it. So it came out great. I, I couldn't be more pleased with it and, and and it was just a fun, fun bike to ride. Yeah, the seat's really important if you're going on that sort of a long trip as well. Absolutely. And the, the a lot of these cruisers have sort of a much more setback feel to them. You're, you're leaning back a bit, your feet are forward, and, and that's not my preferred riding style. So I'd rather be a little bit more uh, sort of upright, and the seat allowed me to do that. I put some beach bars on it, uh, which sort of lengthened the, 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 the bars so I didn't have to reach as far. So it was very comfortable for the ride. Anything you thought you were missing once you got going that you thought you should have done to it? A great question. I don't think so. It was It was pretty... Perfect. Everything everything I had on it was worked worked really well, so I was quite happy with it. And I know you you often ride two up. Your wife likes to ride on the back with you, so you were probably thinking about that, I guess. When you Absolutely. The, the reason I, I built the the way I built it was was really to give her something uh, that she enjoyed riding and and something she loved to do. And she was she thought that the new seat, which is much wider in the back, was was very comfortable. The the slim trunk, which 
Uh, I got mainly because this was sort of coming out of the pandemic. There was supply chain issues. I couldn't get the full trunk, so I got the slim line, and it looks fantastic, but the backrest is kind of short, so that wasn't ideal for her, but everything right. was, was quite comfortable. Interesting, yeah. So Sturgis, let's get back to um, what you made of the actual Sturgis package, because a lot of people, as I say, are wanting to go, and your information could be helpful. You stayed in a hut. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> it sounds like a little ice hut. How yeah, many of you actually much. stayed comfortably in there? There were three of you. Well, it's uh, you know that comfortable is a question mark, but uh, the it's uh, so so the big venue is uh, is Sturgis or sorry is the Buffalo at Sturgis is the Buffalo Chip. That's the sort of right. Big this is the the music, the whole mu music right. entertainment that's where, all, that's where a lot of the music is. Well, there's other places to stay, obviously, but Stur uh, Buffalo Chip has a lot of that. So we chose to to be there to be near the music and the big bands. Sure. And uh, to do that, you've got to buy an access pass to Sturgis because it gets you to the end of the venue, gets you the music and all that. In addition to that, uh, we rented this hut, which they have a couple different options. You can do an RV, you can tent, you can bring your own RV, uh, or you can rent these little huts. And the huts have uh, electricity and air conditioning, which we thought were going to be critical, you know, in the, in the summer in, uh, in South Dakota, it's pretty hot there. Uh, but no running water, bathroom, or any of that. So you're kind of you got to use the the main um, sort of bathroom facilities and, and shower facilities, which turned out to be totally fine, and that was great. But uh, right, phew, yeah. because you probably forgot to take your bucket. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but you know, it, it, because of the rain, it rained the full first full day, and it was cool. So air conditioning was not something we really needed. And, and <laughs> one uh, bonus, maybe something drier and and uh, bigger would have been nice. We spent a little time in the inside the the hut, but it, it worked out great. It was you know, all we really needed, and and everything was fine. Right, and that was and three of you were in there. And it, are they designed to take four people? I'm just yeah, and there's four four cots basically. Right. And, uh, a little tiny desk and a chair, and that's it. And that's all you can fit. And it was kind of good that our one friend, uh, Emil, sort of bailed out because uh, having that a little bit extra space was was kind of nice. Would have made it a squeeze. Yeah, okay, exactly. so you reckon that worked out fine. I mean, you you saying you have to buy uh, a ticket to actually get into the venue, but the acts are fantastic. I mean... Yeah, the first night we heard ZZ Top, which... Wow. ZZ Top's been around a long time, and they started a little... I don't know. I was. They sounded kind of their age a little bit when they started, but boy, did they uh, ramp it up. They were terrific. The guitar ain't playing. The music was was really uh, a big surprise to me, and was was fantastic. So that was great. And the other big uh, uh, people we saw was um, uh, Co Wetzel, um, who I wasn't that familiar with, but he was kind of a country rock guy, really good. Um, and it was um, it was just a really uh, a great experience. That's for sure. Yeah, the whole thing's not, uh, it's not a cheap day out, but I think for seeing those sort of um, landmark iconic acts, I mean, to say you've seen ZZ Top Live is just awesome. Yeah, it, it was, yeah, it, it was pretty, pretty amazing. And the, and the last night we were there, uh, um, um, we had just, just, a, we, we did, a, we decided to do a VIP uh, at the, at the venue um, because, you know, we were going to do the experience and kind of really, you know, so does that give you seating? What does it give you? Yeah, it, it gave you access to this little sort of raised bar and and seating above, kind of in the center of of the mix. And it was really nice to have, particularly given all the rain and and um, uh, and mud that was there. It was it was nice to kind of be out of the fray and 
uh, it wasn't wasn't cheap, but you know, we were you know we weren't going to be going back a lot of times. So we figured we might as well spend it and, and enjoy it uh, um, the way we wanted to do it. And the last band we saw was Leonard Skinner, and and boy, the place oh, just wow. sort of erupted for that. That was kind of really uh, one of the main shows that people came to see, and it was fun to see the enthusiasm for that for sure. Yeah, how incredible! Yeah, amazing. And uh, you know, a lot of people can't stand and can't deal with mud if you're kind of disabled or if you're you're not able-bodied so uh it's handy to know that there are that options those sort of options for people yeah it was, it was nice i mean it, 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 when we when we decided to do it i, I was sort of indifferent to it thought it was a bit of a yeah, a bit more expensive than i would have normally done it but given all the rain and mud and having to stand in the mud in the main area it was it was a nice little upgrade that's for sure <laughs> Although of course rain and mud do does go with uh music. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. What was interesting is that the sort festivals. of ground where the, where the music is, uh they let motorcycles come in too. So it was people and motorcycles and mud and it was pretty it was fun, but pretty messy, that's for sure. And beer. Yeah, beer, lots of beer, yeah. <laughs> Did you buy yourself any souvenirs? I saw that there were lots of patches. You showed me a few photos. Yeah, we saw we we bought I bought a really cool uh, sort of uh shirt, short sleeve shirt with that Sturge's logo and, and that was fun and sort of prop browsed the all the patches, which were the, the amount of things that were selling relative to Sturgis and relative to you know big Harleys and cruisers and it was it was amazing. There was you can buy just about anything there. So it was fun. So but that was that was all we really did. Good to hear. Good to hear that it still remains that sort of uh, bucket list item, you know, that is still going and it's still a good thing. Yeah, I mean, if you if you ride a, a big American cruiser, you know, B twin, you have to go. You have to experience just to see the bikes and talk to the people and and see this many like minded people in one spot. It's uh, you know, it's it's definitely an experience worth going for. I think that. It's probably not something I'm going to go back to very often, um, but it was certainly worth going, and I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. And um, I mean, despite the rain, I mean, the rain aside, I don't know what to say about the rain. But did you find the roads really crowded and unfeasible, or do you just sort of stay in your hut once you're there for the event? The the most people get out and ride, do rides. So that uh, although the Saturday it was raining all day, so people didn't do that. It was just messy. So we all kind of hunkered down, but. Like you ride down to uh, Mount Rushmore, a lot of people did that. And there's various towns and, and stops along the way. And all of them have tons of people and tons of bikes. So there's quite a bit of motorcycles on the road. And you've got, unfortunately, a wide variety of motorcycle rider skills. And so you've got to be a little careful. Um, people are probably not as as safe as, as you hope them to be in certain circumstances. So you got to kind of be aware of the crowds and and uh, the variety of riding levels and and all those kind of things yeah just adjust accordingly exactly so when you left you were probably buzzing when you decided to hit the open roads again and carry on on your tour yeah we had we we had a couple more days the possible plan to stay there if we wanted to but decided that we kind of had our foot you know all the music and and the venue and the experience and the town we'd seen kind of enough and we wanted to move on and, and just riding in, in colorado so so what were your sort of um, average mileages per day or what were you aiming to do? Because it, yeah. that's that's the thing, isn't it? When you're on the road, you're seeing the scenery. Exactly. And, and going to Sturgis and, and leaving it and, and going through Colorado was probably the highlight of the trip, frankly, because being in the West and going from South Dakota towards California, the amount of 
variety of terrain and things to see and places to ride. It's just unbelievable. It's really fantastic. So we had we had fantastic routes and fantastic scenery and pretty good weather. A little bit of rain on the way back, but really not very much, which was which was great. So that that truly made the trip. And did you stop and have a look around? I noticed that you visited the White Bird Battlefield. Did you stop and go in? We we stopped along the way a variety of places where we thought the either the vistas were amazing or we wanted to learn about the uh, the history of of the area like that, that that area as well. So we we really didn't other than Colorado where we stopped to see friends. We just sort of stopped where we felt it, it was really cool. And and following the rivers, the Snake River and the Salmon, the Little Salmon River. That was really beautiful. Just the roads were right along the river and you could just wind up, wind along and have a, have a great view and, and great scenery and cool little places to stop for meals and things like that. So is that the sort of standout area? What do you think? I mean, if you had to choose one area as the most uh, enjoyable, it's difficult to say what's been raining on the uh, Yeah, on the way out, the, the best day was from McCall up north to Highway 12 and the Lolo Pass to Missoula. That that section, which ran along the Little Snake and Snake River, and then over the, the pass into Missoula was just stunning. Really, really beautiful. Pretty empty and great roads and perfect weather. It was it was really a, a fantastic part of the journey. And I think on the way back, um, the second day where we started in Estes Park, then went up to Rocky Mountain National Park over the Continental Divide, and then a couple of the other passes in Colorado to Aspen, also a spectacular day, really gorgeous. And you're seeing those mountains, and I think when you're near mountains, you always get nice, twisty roads, don't you? Not too radical. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the 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 Big Indians probably not its you know preferred spot were uh, tight, tight, twisty roads. Yeah, it's not a nippy sort of a, that, yeah, a exactly. motorcycle. So uh, Alex, being on the the Triumph, he had a much more enjoyable time buzzing through those those right. you sit back on the big cruiser and you sort of take it at the speed that it's comfortable and and the scenery is beautiful and uh, a cruiser is a different vibe it's just a, it's a different type of riding style it's a it's a different approach a different speed and it's very fun and you taken um wet gear with you and your matey boy hadn't taken any um, <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so, we, so we, yeah, we got to the second day we got down to dillon idaho and just as the rain started hitting and we got to our hotel and that was fine and, and realized that he had uh, brought the drinking horn and not the not the rain gear. So the <laughs> next morning we we had to get up and sure enough, we found uh, Murdoch's Ranch and Supply Store in Idaho, which turned out to be literally the rancher's paradise. It had everything in it, including some good rain gear for Alex. And uh, so we got him kitted out and back <laughs> on the road. So it was good. And any other outstanding bits of gear that you want to mention? I don't know what helmet you you choose. and. Yeah, uh, I rode with a, um, a Schuberth um, yeah, E3 helmet, which was fantastic. And um, I also brought a, a, a ride, sort of three-quarter helmet, uh, so I could ride during the day without a you know, full face. And that was oh, also nice, nice for, yeah. for, for riding around. Um, I had a nice Indian jacket that, uh, that Indian had provided, which was a mesh jacket, so it kept it pretty cool. And um, some, uh, actually, some Harley boots uh, that Harley provided, which were also really, really comfortable. And so no yeah. complaints on any of that. No, everything, everything was was fantastic, and I had uh, sufficient rain gear to stay dry on my. <laughs> and the funny part was that you know we got to uh, uh, to these huts, and Alex had mentioned somewhere that we had to bring sleeping bags because there's no bedding. But of course, he neglected to bring his sleeping bags, so he ended up. <laughs> 
sleeping in his frog dogs every night, which was also pretty hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a boy's trip out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And did you have intercoms? Did you, were you able to chat to each other or did you have the joy of peace? Yeah, Alex and I had intercoms, uh, which was which was nice. Although intercoms, they're still a bit sketchy in spots. So uh, we, we had some good conversations and there was times where we just couldn't get the connection right and, and just had that silence or had music, which was nice. Yeah. And how did you find your way around? Did you just uh, use your mobile phones? Which you know, is another great aspect. Alex decided to go analog, old school, with some Butler maps. And I had heard about <laughs> Butler maps before, but I never actually used them. They turned out to be fantastic because we could sit in the morning and really lay out the map and look at the path and and pick the roads. And, and Butler highlights you know, really great motorcycle sections, which really helped helped us pick some 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 great routes. So that was uh, we did that in a combination of of you know using the mobile phones. For, for certain pieces and, and distances, but uh, having the old school maps was was great. I, I will do that again for sure. Well, that's nice to hear. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's there's something pretty cool about pouring over a map before you set off. Absolutely, a little cup of coffee, a little breakfast, and, and picking your route on the map. Particularly again, you know, one that that says, look, this is a great route for motorcycles, or this is not so good. It's uh, it's very helpful. It's really nice. Yeah, and did any. Any of your bikes miss miss a beat? Did you have any issues, problems, hiccups? We did not. Everything everything worked out great. We did not have any uh, anything fail or or we had one one of the straps or one of the bags loosen a little bit and uh, got a little loose, but you know it was a quick fix and everything everything worked out great. And it was kind of surprising because Alex was supposed to bring a different bike, a bike that had a little bit more luggage space, and and he had a mechanical with that bike uh, last minute, so he had to switch to his to this. Triumph, which again oh. doesn't really look like a long distance bike, but he threw on a, a touring windscreen on it and bought some some nice uh, SW Motec uh, panniers for it, and he was great. He had everything he wanted on it, and it was comfortable for him, and he, he really enjoyed it. That's good. Good to hear. Yeah, I mean breakdowns can be fun in retrospect when you look back and laugh, <laughs> but at the time, <laughs> not something desirable. Not something you want on a trip like that. That's for sure. Is there anything else, anything you'd, you would have done differently now that you look back? It's a good question. I mean, if I was if I was going to go again to Sturgis, uh, I might consider uh, upgrading to an RV kind of setup, a little bit nicer, you know, a little more contained. You've got, you can make some food. So I, I, I might consider that. But the challenge is that then you're you're shipping your bike or you're towing your bike in. And, and that's not ideal for me. I think the whole experience was enhanced by riding my motorcycle all the way there and, and feeling that sense of accomplishment of covering 1500 miles to to get to the event and, and showing up for it so that that is uh, something that I probably would not like to give up I really enjoyed that yeah the self-satisfaction of mucking in and actually physically doing all that and getting through the exactly the grisly bits and uh yeah exactly making good times from it I think that's yeah. part of it, isn't it? You get all that camaraderie. It, it is. It really, it really is. And and maybe my, you know, it might be a little different for me if I was coming from, you know, Chicago or some of the plains where you've got just a lot of straight flat riding. That might not be as as enjoyable, I guess. But certainly coming from California towards uh, the east was was great. Yeah, and you're experiencing, you're doing that with your buddy. I mean, that's the whole thing about when you go with somebody or with other people. Exactly. It was camaraderie and fun and shared experience and. And again, picking the route and, and deciding it together, and it was a ton of fun. 
Awesome. So um, what, if you can say, was the best bit? <laughs> Again, I think I think it's that it was the ride out and the ride back. It was the it was the spending time with uh, my good friend and and on bikes. That was certainly one of the one of the great pieces of it. And and just immersing yourself at Sturgis with so many people who have just the same perspectives. I mean, one of the great things about motorcycling is that it it's a great equalizer. It doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter you know what you ride even or what your background or your personal experience or your how you grew up or any of that. None of that matters really once you're on a motorcycle. You're just talking about bikes, you know, admiring somebody's bike or figuring out what you like and and, and telling about yours and your experience and it's a great uh, sort of equalizer and, and that's always always fun to be around people who have that sort of mindset. Yeah, that is that's the great side of it. And there's lots to do actually when you get to Sturgis. They have that museum there as well, don't they? There's um they have got as a ton of the history. Mount Rushmore and the Black Hills. If you've not ever ridden a motorcycle in the Black Hills, uh, you should go and go when Sturgis isn't happening because there are rides through that that are just stunning, really beautiful country and, and an amazing part uh, of uh, of the West to see. It's really, really beautiful. Yeah. The Wild West. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Awesome. Well, thanks for telling us all about that. You're going to write us a story as well so that we can see the details down in print. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, we'll get the online. whole download on, uh, on my buddy Alex. Snake is his, is his biker name. Snake's uh, choice of packing. It'll, we'll give you a little specifics of that in the story. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, fantastic. Anything else that you want to mention that I haven't asked you about? No, I, it was it was great. I uh, I loved every part of it. Uh, the the Indian Springfield was was a great a great choice for me, and and I definitely uh, would if I was going to go back to Sturgis, that would be again the motorcycle I'd hop on for sure. Sounds like a fantastic trip, the sort of thing that you would say, yes, do it. You're not going, oh, well, it was a bit, you know, a bit of a strain. It's it's a yes, go do it. Go yeah, to absolutely. Sturgis, make that your absolutely. high point. Yeah, absolutely. all roads in between. Yep. Thanks for sharing. Fantastic. No problem at all. Cheerio. Cheerio.